0: The sermon text uh, is from Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26, and you can find this on page 496. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for, for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, and gave it to them, and they all drank, drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of God.
1: So you may not realize this, but my wife Melissa is out of town all week, and so I am holding on. I'm trying to make it. Um, But yesterday I took my kids to the Harry Potter store. Did you know that there is a Harry Potter store on Newberry Street? Um, Apparently it's not for kids actually, it's for adults. So um, there was lots of shushing and telling them not to touch things. Um, Anyway, Harry Potter, yeah. Any Harry Potter fans here? Anybody? Yeah, right, good. Maybe if you're a Harry Potter fan, even if you're not, uh, you, you probably know the basics of that story, right? It starts out with this Harry Potter in the first book. He's a young kid, um, and he lives with the Dursleys, which is it's it's his aunt and uncle and his cousin, and they they treat him terribly. Um, they they make him live underneath a staircase, and uh, even though he's a pretty good kid, you know he's not a bad kid. They they treat him like he's the scum of the earth, but in the very First pages of the very first book, uh, everything changes when somebody shows up and tells Harry Potter this the big secret, that he is actually a wizard. And uh, everything changes at that moment, right? From then on, uh, when Harry's not in school, uh, between the books, he'll come back home and he'll live again with his terrible aunt and uncle. But their relationship is totally changed at that moment. He's enduring the same kind of suffering that he's always endured. But now, things are different because he knows who he is. Things are different because he has learned his true story. And that's what I want to talk about this this morning. I want to talk about how everything changes for us when we know our story. What about you? Do you know your story? What about us? As a church, do we know our story? Do we know our history? Do we know our present reality that we're living in? Do we know the future that God has promised us as a people? As I was studying this passage this week and thinking about it, one of the things that occurred to me was, I think probably one of our major causes for anxiety, our major causes for stress, our major causes for for despair, come from this basic misunderstanding. They come from the fact that we don't know who we are and where we're headed. We don't know the story that Christ has told us we belong to. And so this morning, that's really simply where we're going to go. I want us to look at the story Jesus tells us, where we fit into that story, and then how we can be changed by it. So the story Jesus tells us, where we fit into that story, and how we can be changed by it. Um, So what is the story that Jesus tells us? The last few weeks, if you've been here, we have been really blessed to have some amazing preachers up here. I know I've been blessed being here, starting with, with Pastor Steve... And then also Bradley Barnes, who came in from our sister congregation, Christ the King in Newton. Last week we had Moses from Christ the King in Dorchester. And they, they really ministered to me. I hope they ministered to you. As they were teaching us about Mark, though, one of the things you probably noticed was the mounting tension in all of these stories. Did you hear that? Ever, really, ever since Jesus came into Jerusalem about a month ago in our schedule, things have been tense. The scribes and the Pharisees, they've gathered up and they are trying to trap Jesus in his own words. And then last week, Moses told us about how they finally succeeded when Judas sold Jesus out. He has agreed for a price to trap him. And now we come to Mark in the midst of that moment. Judas is just waiting to strike. He's looking for his opportunity. And if this were a Hollywood movie all of it would be focused on Judas right now, wouldn't it? As we're going to the upper room and we're watching Jesus lay out this feast, can't you just imagine the camera zooming in on him and his sweaty brow and his shifty eyes and showing how nervous he looks during the whole scene? But that's not what happens in Mark. Mark, if you notice when uh, Correll was reading it for us, he doesn't even mention Judas's name one time in this passage. Instead of zooming in on him, He really zooms out. He he backs up and and tries to show us that the betrayal that Judas just did is really only a small piece of a much bigger story. So it might seem abrupt. It might seem abrupt to go from Judas getting money in exchange for Jesus' life to this comparatively mundane thing. It's the disciples and they're saying, you know, where should we have Passover? Let's make some plans. Let's go find a room. Let's make dinner arrangements. But it's Mark's way of directing your attention. Mark's trying to show you what you should be looking at. It's not just about the events. It's not just about the characters. It's not just about the actors in this scene. It's about what those events mean. It's about what this means for the people of God for generations who are going to read this story. It's about what this means for you. And Jesus does a good job of making it very clear for us. But in order for us to understand it, you need to know a little bit about the meal they're having here. You need to understand what the Passover uh, is all about. So if you've read Exodus before, you probably know the basics of this story, or if you've just seen some of the movies about it, right? you know that the Hebrew people before the Passover had been enslaved in Egypt. They were oppressed. They were crying out to God. And God hears their prayers. And He calls this man Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And Moses, he goes to the Pharaoh, he goes to the leaders of the nation, and they refuse. Time and time again, the Pharaoh refuses to let the enslaved people go. And so God sends plagues. He sends a series of 10 plagues and the first nine of them only affect the Egyptians. The Hebrews, they're living off to the side in this area called Goshen. And those first nine plagues don't touch them. But then at the climax of this story, God sends the 10th and final plague. It is called the plague of the firstborn. Do you remember this? The plague of the firstborn where he says he is sending the angel of death to visit every household in the nation and every firstborn child in those households is going to die. Unless. Unless each family sacrifices a lamb and takes the blood from that lamb and paints it over the top of the doorposts, over the lintels of the door, and hides beneath its blood. In Exodus chapter 11, it says... The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so that's what happens. The angel of death comes and it devastates Egypt. And that's the final straw. At that moment, the Pharaoh finally sets the people free. And from that moment on, in the history of Israel, the people had a feast. God instituted this feast that they would always remember what God had done for them. There were two things that they celebrated every year at the Passover feast. One, that God had rescued his people from death. And two, that God had delivered his people from slavery. And every year they got together, families got together, and they would tell this story. And they would share this meal. And over the years, this formal liturgy around the meal uh, came into existence. And so you always went through these same prayers and these same practices every single time. And that's what's happening. That's what's been going on for the last couple of chapters in Mark. That's why everybody is in town. Remember when we were cleansing the temple a few weeks ago, how there were huge crowds? Everyone was there for the Passover. And that is... The Passover feast is what's going on here in our our passage. This is the big celebratory meal. That's what the disciples are preparing for. Um, So to get this scene, to understand this scene, you got to know Jesus is presiding over this Passover feast. And when Mark tells us in verse 22, As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, gave it to them and said... If you were an early Christian, if you had come out of a predominantly Jewish society, you would have known exactly where they were in the meal at that point. Right? The same way of you're reading a story about somebody's Thanksgiving and they say, after the parade, we carved the turkey. Right? You would know they didn't have a parade at their house. They were watching the parade on TV because that's just what Americans tend to do. They watch a parade and then they eat turkey. Well, if you were in the early church, you would have known the process. You would have known the liturgy. You would have known that this is the point in the meal where the facilitator stands up and he takes the unleavened bread and he says, This is the bread of the affliction of our fathers. This is the bread they ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. But Mark tells us in that moment... When Jesus was saying that prayer, he adds, Take. This is my body. Jesus, in the middle of the Passover, decides to put himself at the center of the meaning of this feast. He's saying, this meal is all about me. This bread that you know is the bread of the affliction, this bread is about my suffering. And it's about the deliverance that I have come to bring to you. Another thing you should know about the Passover meal is that there were four cups of wine that the people drank. And each of those cups, it went along with a blessing from Exodus. Each one had its own special meaning that you drank as you went through the feast. And the first cup Well, here's the verse in Exodus. God says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God. And here's the first promise. And I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And so they would drink that cup and remember that promise. And then the second promise was, and I will deliver you from slavery. And then the third cup, the promise was, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And then finally, the fourth cup that would end the feast was, I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Mark tells us here, it was the third cup. The cup where God says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. That's the cup that Jesus takes and he picks it up and he says... This is my blood. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. So Jesus is telling us this story. He's telling us the same story that every person in Israel would have heard that that evening. But he tells it and he says that this story is about me. That the defining story, the story that gave the people of Israel their identity as a freed people of God was ultimately a story that was pointing towards him. That was ultimately all about his death and resurrection. So that's the story he tells, okay? Now, here's where you and I come in. Jesus is saying that this is a story that involves us. This is the second point I want to make. This is your story. This story is our story. Okay, who here, who likes to eat here? We got some people that like to eat, yeah, good. I'm glad, it's good for you to eat. Um, I really like to eat, I love to eat. Especially at holidays, right, Thanksgiving, Christmas, even the Super Bowl, right? Anytime there's like a big meal laid out, I'm not, I'm not happy unless I leave there feeling awful, right? <laughs> Unless I leave there regretting every decision I've made. That's, that's a good holiday meal for me. And maybe if you're like me, if you're a food person and you're reading about this feast that they're having, maybe you noticed some weird things about this feast. Did you notice anything weird? It doesn't sound like much of a feast if you just go by Mark's description, right? There's unleavened bread, there's some herbs, uh, and there's some wine, right? If this were the feast, like we're, we're going to McDonald's after, guys. We, this is not acceptable. we got to go somewhere where we can get filled up. But, of course, that's not really what they ate that day. There was, there was another part of this feast. The main course. The lamb, right? What we just talked about, that every family needs to sacrifice a lamb and eat that lamb together. But Mark doesn't mention that. And if you read... The other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, John, for some reason, none of them mention the Lamb. Not one Gospel mentions that there's a Lamb present at the Passover meal that Jesus was presiding over. And that's on purpose. They probably did have a Lamb there, but the Gospel writers don't mention it for the same reason when we come to this feast We don't have lamb on top. The reason we don't have a lamb on our table is because the writers of the Gospel want us to see that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is that true Passover lamb whose blood covered the sins of the world. Jesus is the reason why all of those other lambs that they sacrificed throughout history. He's the reason why those lambs had any significance or any power. The Celtics this year, I I don't know if you pay attention to basketball, but you know, during the offseason, they traded their best player. They traded Isaiah Thomas. He was like a superstar for them last year. Uh, He like carried the team on his back into the playoffs. He was the best player that we had. And in the middle of the offseason, they traded for Kyrie Irving. And you know, Kyrie Irving, he might be better. He's probably better. Like, he's a great player. The the Celtics are at the top now. They're doing great. But as we look at that trade, we say, that was a good trade, right? Trading one great basketball player for another great basketball player. But what about this trade? A sheep for the life of a person. What kind of sense does that make? Why did it work for the Israelites to paint a sheep's blood over the top of their house and it saved a human being's life? That's not a fair trade. That's not an even deal. A lamb cannot stand in the place of a human being. But Jesus tells us here that that lamb was a foreshadowing. That lamb was a signpost pointing ahead that all of those lambs were pointing to this moment that we're reading about right here. They're pointing to this day at this Passover when the true lamb of God was going to shed his blood where the perfect, righteous, sinless, almighty Son of God would die in our place so that death would pass us over. So that we would be freed from our bondage. So that we would be freed from our slavery to Satan and sin and death. And that means for us, when we take the communion meal... That's what this is now. This is what's been handed down to us. It means that when we take this meal, we're going to say the exact same things. We are effectively saying the same thing those Israelites said. The same thing that they said when they took that Passover meal, when they shared that story. They are saying, this is my story. This meal tells me who I really am. I am a part of, of the rescued people of God. I am no longer a slave. I am now a son. I am now a daughter of the living God. That is what defines me. And that's not the only thing Jesus said. If you keep looking in your passage, there you see verse 25. He says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So I mentioned that there were those four cups, right? The fourth cup, the one that finishes the meal, Jesus said, I'm not going to drink that. I'm not closing out this deal until I see you in the kingdom of God. So that means that this Passover story, that this meal isn't just telling us about something that happened a long time ago in the past when we come take this we're not just thinking about what jesus did for us thousands of years ago we're not even uh, limited to thinking about what this means for us today with our salvation at this very moment but this communion meal is telling us about a day that's coming in the future it's telling us about the christians hope That God is coming to redeem this broken world. That he's promised that he's coming back to finish the job. Do you know that? Do you know that the Christian's hope is not that we just float away? That we get wings and harps and that we go up into the clouds? That's not the Christian's hope. The Christian's hope is that we have a God who is coming to restore the broken things. And he has given us this tangible, edible, smellable, drinkable, physical thing to remind us that we have a God who loves this tangible, physical world. That we have a God who experiences our physical pain and hurt. And who is coming to bring us a real redemption. Not a redemption that lives only in the clouds, but He is really coming to transform you and to change this world. And that's what I mean when I say that knowing your story makes all the difference. Because, well let's be honest, right now, life is hard, amen? Now if you didn't say amen because your life is easy right now, well praise God, but just wait, (laughs) because life is hard. This world is full of of suffering. There's the big picture suffering. There's the things that we're we're constantly grappling with, like war and famine and racism and injustice and and the suffering we see. And then there's, there's the smaller scale stuff too. Difficult relationships that we're in. Broken marriages, misunderstandings, miscommunications. Our battles with addiction or lust or anger, the pains, the physical pains of our body, dealing with the death of people we love. We are facing a daily struggle. And sometimes it is really hard to make sense of it. Sometimes it is hard to find meaning in all the pain that we feel. And if you're not connected to a greater story, if you don't know the story that you belong to, then I promise you someday those things, they're going to crush you. But that's what this meal's for. This meal is here to connect you to your story. This meal is here to connect you to your Savior, to remind you that because he was crushed, you're not going to be crushed. To show you that the circumstances of your life are not what really define you. But what defines you is who God has said you are. What defines you is what God has promised he's going to do. This meal is supposed to bring us back to our senses. Every time we eat this bread, every time we drink from this cup this bread is supposed to tell us hey I know you've been listening to some of the lies I know that you're struggling to believe these things I know that the world told you it was gonna satisfy you and it's failed you I know that the world has been telling you that you are all alone that nobody loves you that nobody cares about you but that is not true This meal says, you belong to Christ? And we all take it together, right? We don't take this individually. We take this as one body because it reminds us that we belong to each other. We are not alone. We, together, are the redeemed people of God. Brought back from death. Freed from slavery. And and you know what else? Headed to the promised land. Amen? Amen. That's who we are. That's our identity. You, if you are in Christ, that's your story. Maybe you just need to think about that. Maybe you should repeat it to yourself. Say, that's my story. That's who I am. But what do we do about that? How do we respond? Okay, I've told you the facts. But I, this is supposed to be a meal that, that changes our lives. This is not just a ritual. This is supposed to be something that changes us, that has power in it. So how does that happen? How's this meal, this, wow, incredibly long loaf of bread. Did anybody notice how long this is? It's like a giant sub or something. How is this meal, this bread and this cup, how is that going to change you? How is eating that going to change you today? Well, Paul gives us some instructions. In 1 Corinthians, he says, Verse 27. You know, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, take one of these home with you. We'd love for you to take it. It's yours. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks of the bread without discerning the body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. What's that all about? Well, when Paul is remembering this moment, When Paul is telling us as the church how we're supposed to practice this meal that Jesus gave us, he wants us to recognize that this is a powerful meal. And it's not powerful because the bread is magic, okay? It's not powerful because we went and got special wine shipped in from the Holy Land. It's boxed wine from Blanchards. Sorry, guys. Uh, Cost effective. Um, The bread's not magic, but there's power here. The power doesn't come just by eating it. It doesn't come just by putting it in your body. If you are going to come and be changed by this meal, Paul says we have to do two things. First, we have to take and eat. When Jesus says, Take, this is my body, he's talking about more than chewing it up and swallowing it. You know that? When Jesus says take, he is inviting you to fellowship and faith. Jesus, the son of God, is sitting at the family dinner table and he says, I have a seat right here for you. Come, eat. He's saying, come and say to me, Jesus, I love you. My life belongs to you. In Egypt, back at that first Passover, there was no dead ritual happening there. You know that, right? There was no one who was taking that meal and just going through the motions. That meal was a matter of life and death. Whoever did not rest beneath the blood of that lamb, death came into their house. There was no one who could escape it. Similarly, there is no room for empty rituals right here. There's no room for dead religion up here at this table. If you're going to take this meal, that means you need to have the blood of Christ painted over the door of your hearts. You need to recognize that apart from God sending his son to die in your place on the cross, apart from his miraculous deliverance, then death is coming for you. There's nowhere to hide. If you come to this meal, you've got to come in confession. You need to come in repentance. Just a second ago, I was rattling all, off all of those things that we struggle with, right? Right? all the suffering that we face, all the hardships that we face, all those realities that we are wrestling with that that pull us away from the Lord. Well, if you're going to come to this table, you have to lay those things down. You have to lay down the things that the world is telling you and instead say, the thing that defines me, the story that tells me who I am is Christ crucified. I'm not defined by what other people think of me. I'm not defined by my stress level or my employment status or how much money I have in the bank. Like that old hymn says, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. So that's the first thing you have to do. You've got to take it. You have to take it into your hearts. And the second thing Paul says we have to do is we have to discern the body. Did you read that part? He talked about coming in an unworthy manner. He says you got to discern the body. Now, on one hand, discerning the body means something pretty obvious. It means you need to recognize that this isn't just bread. If you want some bread, we got bagels in the back. You know, you can have those. But this isn't just bread. This is something different. This meal is the body and blood of Christ given for you. And if you don't believe that, if you don't think that that's something that you need, don't take this. It's not for you. But on the other hand, discerning the body means something else, too. You know, there's another aspect of that. When the, in the Bible, do you know where they use the word body of Christ? What are we talking about when we say the body of Christ? I'm asking. Somebody tell me. Church. The church. Right? The church is the body of Christ. When he says discern the body, one of the things we gotta do is discern the fellowship that we're part of. This is a meal that is meant for families to take together. That's why if you miss church, I'm not bringing communion to your house, right? This meal is meant to be taken together. So when Paul says we gotta discern the body, one other question you need to ask yourself is, am I a part of the body? Am I a part of a people of God? Do I recognize that Christ has given me a new name and a new identity, that he's given me a new family with brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers? A good question to ask before you come up here today is say, do I live like I am a part of the people of God? You know, that's one of the greatest blessings that we've got here. That is one of the most tremendous things that is offered to you in Christ. It's our connection with each other. That's why there are all these commands that talk about whenever we come to the altar, we need to reconcile. We need to mend our relationships, right? If somebody has something against you, it says go and be reconciled. If you have something against someone else, you need to go and be reconciled. I really love that because it tells us First of all, the, the, the thing that makes the church special is not that we're perfect. It's not that we're living in this like utopian harmony and we all get along and we all love each other perfectly and we never make mistakes. That's not the case. We, become, we make lots of mistakes. We have just as many misunderstandings as anybody else does. But the thing that is special about the church is that we can be reconciled. It's that we can Repent. <laughs> It's that we can come and say, I'm sorry, I know I've failed you. We can hear someone say, you've failed me, and we can accept it because we know we're sinners. Look, if, if I haven't disappointed you yet as your pastor, you just haven't known me long enough. We're, we're all disappointments. But the beauty of the church is that we are brought together by Christ So when you come to here, this table, you need to ask yourself, do I belong to the body of Christ? Do I belong to a people? Now maybe you're from out of town. I'm, you may not belong to this people specifically. But I'm saying, you need to ask yourself, am I part of the church? Has the Holy Spirit made this story my story? Has Christ's sacrifice come to define my life? Do you know that Christ has saved you and that you will be with His people forever. That some of these people in the room, you're going to see for all of eternity. Well, I want to say to you this morning, if you don't know that, now is the time. There is no better time than than right now at this moment to stop believing the lies of the world. To come and receive this invitation that Christ gives us. He says, stop resting in your own righteousness and instead take Eat. This is my body. Come and drink this blood. It is for you. Take my righteousness as your own and come into the fellowship of the Father. I want to invite you to, the, you know, the way that Harry Potter was when Hagrid shows up, right? To be freed by finding out your story. And if you do know it, if you do know those things, and you're like me, And you've struggled to believe it this week. You failed to to live as if it were really true of you. Then I hope you're getting hungry. Because this meal is given for you freely. It's not for people who have deserved it. It's not for people who've done everything perfectly. It's for people who are resting beneath the blood of the Lamb. Only He can save you. If you want that today, I want to invite you to come here and come joyfully. Come in repentance, come in faith, but come in celebration to this family meal.